Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. All right, Lauren Gibbs, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. So amongst uh, a number of things on your resume, perhaps the standout one is uh, you being an Olympic silver medalist in the sport of bobsled. But I knew you before you decided to kind of go down that route. And I know it's it's been a really interesting journey there. Of course, been an athlete all your life, but didn't start out focused on bobsledding. You know, would love to just maybe get an understanding of how'd you arrive at that sport and what brought you there? Yeah, I mean, being from LA, bobsled was, to me, was a 1990s Disney movie, which, <laughs> yes, I love cool runnings. But no, it's not very accurate. The option to bobsled came at a time in my 30s, in 2014, when, like, by every sense of the word, like, obvious word of success, I had I'd checked the box, right? I'd graduated from a great university, was in the process of getting my MBA, I was making good money. I had a nice car. I had great friends like you. I had, you know, an apartment that I loved. I was crossfitting. I was healthy and I was climbing the corporate ladder, but I was, I was just unsatisfied and a little disappointed with like having arrived at the place that I had thought would not only bring me success, but happiness and realizing that the idea of doing what I was doing on a daily basis was not only not fulfilling, but it was like kind of, I wouldn't say depressing, but just like, yeah, maybe depressing, right? Because I, I had kind of gotten to a spot where I was like, is this really what the rest of my life is going to be like? Where I, I show up, you know, at an office for a company that whose values don't really vibe with mine and work. And there's nothing wrong with corporate America if it, if it fit, suits you and if the organization that you're part of, you know, is something that you believe in and not that the organization I was working with was bad. It just wasn't what I had pictured for my life. And so, you know, just randomly one day working out at the gym that both of us went to, uh, one of our mutual friends, Jillian Potter was like, Hey Lauren, you should bobsled. She was just on the show by the way. Was she? Yeah. (laughs) Now that's an exceptional human. Yeah. She was like, you should bobsled. And, and I was like, Jill, I'm 30. I am not like you. I'm not superhuman. And I can't just pick up an Olympic sport and be excellent at it. But um, she kind of just kind of kept on it. And, you know, obviously I'm not in Denver anymore, but I was living in Denver at the time. And I found out that there are these things called Olympic training centers. And there was one an hour away. And I was like, well, I just want to check out what a, an Olympic training center is. And that's where the, the tryout was being hosted. And so it all just kind of snowballed from there. So I think a lot of people struggle with that dynamic that you talked about of, you know, I checked all these boxes and I don't really like where it got me or I don't think, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily what I expected on the other side of, you know, achieving these things I aspired to. 
what was it about athletics or specifically the pursuit of, you know, this athletic goal that made you think maybe this is the answer? I wish it was like that altruistic. It was more like the Olympics is an acceptable reason to completely leave a very conventional life behind. Like, not that I expected at the at that time to actually make the Olympic team. It was kind of like, maybe if I get good enough, they'll take me as an alternate or I'll just have these amazing stories about the experience of, you know, trying to be an Olympian and like failing, but trying, you know, trying. Cause like, that's pretty noble in itself. And so it was more of, if I was going to leave a very secure lifestyle and one that I could have continued to live and, you know, would have been fine. It needed to be for something that like people would be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. If I had the chance to do that, I'd probably try and do that too. You know, it had to be something I could sell to people. <laughs> so that's interesting it, in terms of sort of thinking about the way it would be perceived. Was that at the forefront of your mind and did you face a lot of friction or pushback from your circle when you sort of made these life choices? And it's funny when I say how it was perceived, I I wasn't even really thinking of like what other people would say. It was more like to a certain extent, I felt like I was giving up on, you know, how I had planned my life to be. I think the cool thing about I don't know if it's how I was raised or just who I am intrinsically as a person. It's not that I don't worry about what other people are going to think. I just, I'm used to doing things that other people, you know, are a little bit uncomfortable with, right? Like I started in sales at 18 years old, selling Cutco knives in people's homes. And everybody thought that was weird and it was weird, (laughs) but I really loved it. It's great. And I made a lot of money and, and, you know, and like I am in high school, I played soccer from like 18 years old to 16. And then at 16 years old, I was like, you know what? I'm not good at soccer. And I just quit. And then I just picked up volleyball. And my dad was like, you're never going to go to college and play volleyball. Why do you want to play club volleyball? And I did, I went to Brown and played volleyball. And so my life is just kind of this story of things that I kind of just jump in with both feet and just go after. And it wasn't until someone pointed it out to me, my, I did a TEDx talk after the Olympics and my TEDx teacher was like, that's just who you are. It's who you've always been. And I, I never thought of it that way. Cause like, I don't think we sit around thinking about how our decisions frame who we are as people. So yeah, I think the person I was trying to convince was less the external and more the internal, but, but back to your original question. Absolutely. My mom was like, what? And my dad was like, absolutely no. And then my friends were like, huh? <laughs> Yeah. And how long did it take before people sort of got on board? That's an interesting question. I think the people closest to me were always on board. They were just worried that like, is she really going to be able to pull this off? Because to me, an Olympian is somebody that starts their sport at four years old, not someone that starts their sport at 30. Yeah. To people that were not as close in my circle, the questions I would get would be like, Oh, you're still doing the bobsled thing. So like any plans to get a real job (laughs) anytime soon. But I think it was like probably 2016, 2017, as we got closer to the Olympics and I was still doing it, people were like, Oh, 
you could actually go to the Olympics. That that's kind of cool. So, and then it was like, well, you're going to be an Olympian or like, what are the chances? And I'm like, I can't answer those questions and no, I'm not an Olympian yet. (laughs) That was something Jillian was, was very big on, on, you know, when she could and could not be called an Olympian. Yeah. It's big in our world. Yeah. I can imagine. So how long after that initial tryout, did it become something where you said, I'm quitting my job, walking away from the sort of conventional life that you describe, and this is what I'm doing? Probably about three months. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty fast. Yeah. And it probably would have been faster. It's just when I did my initial tryout, it was summer. And then it, it wasn't until October of 2014 that I took my first bobsled ride. And then team trials happened in November. So I made the national team, my first national team in November of 2014. So there really wasn't anything to quit my job for until I got named that national team. And did you know, as soon as you were named, you're like, this is, this is my thing. I'm going for it. Oh yeah. I mean, before I got named to the team, I, I, I'd made the decision. If like I actually make the team, I'm, I'm going for it. I just, and I remember the conversation with my boss at the time and I was lucky I was working for a startup and he was a good friend of mine that I'd worked for actually in Cutco. And so I remember like just being like, Hey, so I might bobsled. But at the time that I had the conversation with him, I didn't realize bobsled was something that you did year in and year out. I thought it was just like you train and then you go to the Olympics. I didn't realize there were competition seasons every year. And I think that is kind of the misconception for most Olympic sports, or at least for bobsled is I always hear how's training going, how's training going. I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of my competition season. Oh, so where are you training right now? I'm like, I'm competing in Europe, you know? So it's a misnomer that the Olympic sports only happen every four years. Because you've been around the world competing and you've actually won a number of, of world championships, haven't you? So I've won one world championships. I took third in 2016, first in 2020, and then have competed in five total world championships and finished top five in the other two the other three. Okay. And when you compete in those, you're competing against other American teams as well as teams from around the world. I assume the Americans all train together for the most part. Yep. Is it typically a pretty strong team environment across different bobsled duos or is it a little bit more maybe competitive? Everybody asked me, you know, was I nervous or was it scary competing at the Olympics? In 2018, I said no, because I'd had to go through the Hunger Games to get there. (laughs) So imagine just like six of the most type A, strong-willed, hard-charging, talented, deserving women you could think of, and then add in the three pilots, so make it nine, and then tell them, hey, here's this one thing, it's called a gold medal, and only two of you can have it. So you can imagine how that goes. So we're definitely a team. It's kind of like siblings, right? I can mess with my sibling, but no one else can mess with my sibling, right? So like, I think we would, we would fight for each other, but we'll also fight against each other, which is, can be, it's never boring. I'll tell you that it's never boring. And what's the dynamic like between pilots and and brakemen, which is, I believe that's your, your Mm -hmm. title, right? What's that dynamic like and how does that work? Because you sort of mentioned the pilots separately from the other members of the team. Yeah, that is a dynamic I think that has been 
simultaneously difficult and probably the most frustrating part sometimes for me because so pilots are like on a next level right it's like you almost have to give your soul to this sport and like maybe your firstborn so what a lot of people don't realize in olympic sport especially in the united states a lot of the burden of the financial side of becoming an olympian is on the athlete and so for example, pilots rent sleds from the, their federations or some pilots have to buy their own sleds. They also buy their oh. own runners, which are the blades. Yeah. And those runners can be upwards of like ten to $15,000. And so, oh. yeah, becoming a pilot, it, there's a big investment financially and then time-wise. You know, it takes time to develop the skill. So the pilot that I competed with in the Olympic, I think has been bobsledding for like 12, 13 years. The pilot that I competed with last year in world championships uh, next year will be her 20th season. And so there is a, a level of skill you develop as a pilot that becomes hard to replace. Now, what I do has a lot of skill behind it as well. But when you're in a country where there is no shortage of talented athletes and strong, fast athletes, I become a little bit more replaceable than a pilot. And so it's tough because I always feel like my head's on a chopping block <laughs> for lack of a better term. And so it's like always trying to get in the top sled and always trying to get the, nu- the number of runs you need to improve and always try and be the person that, or be the athlete that they want for that, the, the most important competition, whether it be world championships for that year or the Olympics. And so the dynamic, there's definitely a power struggle and a power dynamic with the pilots and the break when that that, it, that gets a little awkward at times. Interesting. And for your Olympic run, your pilot was Alana Myers Taylor, and she was in a number of commercials and the run up to the Olympics. She seemed to sort of be the face of the, the sport, at least uh, the American facing side of the sport. What was that like? And did you, you know, what was that sort of pressure? And did you feel like there were a lot of eyes on you leading up to that? Yes. The cool thing about that is, is coming into the sport, there was no question of what the expectation would be if I were to race with either Alana or Jamie Gruvelposer, who was the USA two sled. Uh, Both of them had come off of Sochi with an Olympic win. They're two of the best pilots in, in the world. And, you know, that moment is something I prepared going into preparing to know that if I get in that sled, like the expectation is that I win a medal. And so and there's the added pressure of like just the U.S. legacy. So bobsled for Olympic bobsledding for women has only been a thing since 2002. And Team USA has won an Olympic medal in every Olympics since 2002 on the women's side. So that expectation was made clear early on. And so I think because it wasn't a surprise, you know, it was my moment, like, give me the ball. Like, I want the ball. Let me take the shot, you know? So that part of it, it wasn't tough. Now the tough part going to the Olympics is a week before we, we went to Korea, Alana partially tore her Achilles tendon. So that added a, an extra layer of stress, but she's one of the strongest human beings I've ever met. So I, I had no doubt we could figure it out. And how far ahead of time did you know that a, you were making it to the Olympics and B that Alana was your pilot three weeks before we left for Korea. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so that date's circled on your calendar, you know, years out. 
Is it something that the American Federation chooses? Who's deciding who's paired with who and who's making the cut? So the pilots qualify their spot based on world ranking. And then we have a selection committee within the United States. I think at that time it was nine people who decide the pairings. Interesting. So the the pilot seems to have a lot of independence in terms of obligations, but they ultimately aren't deciding who's in their sled with them. So they they do have input and that's, I think it's a big part of it. It's just not the only part of it. Got it. And so it being a, a team sport, how are you evaluated as an individual if everything is based off of sort of race results that you're, you're with another person on? Yeah. So it's a mixture of start time. So there's a different, they record the actual start time. So when you start pushing a sled, the time doesn't start until about the 10 to 15 meter mark. So the start time is basically from the 15 meter mark to the 50 meter mark. So that window is considered start time. They also look at velocity. So they look at like, once you load in the sled, what kind of speed are you carrying? And does that speed increase or decrease? And then they also look at, you know, do you gel well with the pilot? Can you make weight? Because that's a thing. We have a weight maximum of the sled and the two athletes. And we also have a a weight minimum for the sled. So you have to be able to make weight within the confines of like the weight rule. Um, And then it's like, what is your, you know, experience? Do you have international experience? Have you done well in the past? Has this combo historically done well, or we expect that combo to do well at the Olympic. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. And the selection committee meets for hours to make the decision because once they make the decision, they can't, they, it's not easy to take back. So. Are your numbers in the weight room are, you know, are there like uh, combine like stats that, that people are paying attention to those, do those things matter? Or is it more how you're showing up on race day? Yeah. So combine numbers definitely play into it. They play a bigger role when it's, it gets to a point where it's hard to, decide which athlete. So if the push times are kind of the same, if the results are kind of the same, then they'll continue going down the list of criteria of things or collection of testing or numbers or results that they have to make that decision. So is that always sort of in the back of your mind in terms of what other women on the team are doing in the weight room or in training versus what you're doing? I think when I first started, yeah, you got you get caught up in what everybody else is doing. And then I realized that me worrying about what everybody else was doing wasn't going to change what they were doing. And it definitely shouldn't change what I'm doing because each person is a different athlete. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. And if I spend all this time focused on how, you know, athlete A and C were training, then Where's the time to focus on, you know, what are my strengths and what weaknesses can I make strengths? And so obviously that sounds great in theory, but it can be really hard, right? Because basically what happens at the end of a season, we all go off to our respective areas of the, you know, country and train. And then we all come back together in the fall for preseason testing. And it's kind of like, well, you know, she looks like she's in great shape or she doesn't look quite, quite as in good shape as she, as I thought she would, or, you know, it's human nature to kind of size each other up. But I found that if I focus too much on what other people are doing, it took away from me preparing the way I know I needed to prepare. 
that can be a bit of a universal thing, especially I think with, with driven people, it's, you know, so-and-so raised this much money or, you know, is living this kind of lifestyle or, or achieving X, Y, and Z. And it's easy to get carried away looking around at what everyone else is doing instead of focusing on, you know, getting incrementally better yourself every day. Who are you telling? I'm an unmarried, no, no kids, <laughs> living in a dorm room, 37 year old woman. So yeah, where my friends are like married, have kids now. So yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that kind of, and, and I think it's only, you know, amplified by this social media culture that we live in where, you know, we only want to show people our best life, right? I'm living my best life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy to get sucked into it, even if you're aware of it, you know, to sort of stare into that void and say, God, all these people are doing all these next level things and I'm not doing anything. How do you, you know, I know the psychological component of competing like this is a, is a huge part of it. How do you stay focused and, and sort of tune out that noise to keep moving towards your goals? I think one of the things that I do is I take action. So I try not to like just get caught up and let, you know, negative thoughts swirl. And when the swirling happens, my default is to train, right? Like thinking about what could go wrong or what is going wrong. I do give myself time to do that. Right. I, I try and keep it to five minutes, but it's never, I have a five minute rule. I have five minutes to be as pissed off and, irrational and like cry and kick things and hopefully not throw things because I don't want to break a phone, but you know, just be (laughs) like ridiculous. And I usually call you know, my best friend or a teammate or my, my parents or a friend, just like, I'm over it. Bob's that doesn't matter. But then once that time is up, I, I take action because at the end of the day, whether I am successful or I'm not, I have a better chance of being successful if I take action that is going to move me in the right direction. So that's what I really try and focus on is doing the little things uh, that are going to move me in the right direction. So you have a a pretty clear framework on that. And I think typically those frameworks aren't developed out of thin air. You kind of have to go through some stuff to get there. How long has that taken you to really understand maybe, uh, going down a certain path that I know isn't productive and here's what I'm going to go do to solve it. Yeah, I think it, you know, it, it dates back to like my bobsled life because I've always been one of those people that I think I hate losing more than I enjoy winning. And so even as a kid, I was one of those people that if I didn't think things were going to go well, I would just quit. Like I played, I did ballet, I quit that. I played piano, I quit that. I played the viola, I quit that you know, even jobs that I'm like, if, and that's why sales is always hard for me is because like sales is always like, what can you do for me next? Like you have to be great every single month, every mm-hmm. single year. There's no time to just kind of sit, settle and like, just, you know, send emails and, and create spreadsheets. You're always trying to create something. And so I, um, in like my mid to late twenties, I feel like a, this cliche and corny, but I was always like searching to try and figure out like who I was and what I was about. And I just kept quitting stuff. And so like, that's what spurred the desire to go to grad school because, you know, you look at my resume, I have sales experience. I went to Brown, this Ivy league school, you know, was captain of the volleyball team, but I didn't feel as accomplished as my resume showed. 
right? So I went to grad school to try and feel more accomplished. And I still didn't feel as accomplished as my resume showed. And I just felt like I continually was trying to add things to feel more accomplished. And then finally, I was like, maybe the key to feeling accomplished is to seeing something through to a completion. And so I thought, starting this, I was like, I'm committing to myself, win, lose, or draw. We're, we're doing a four years of bobsled. And whether I make the Olympics or not, I'm doing it with the caveat of I have to try every day and trying every day looked different every day, but I had to try every day. And I think that's kind of where that came from. It came from like, I just wanted to see who I was and what I could accomplish when I really set my mind to it. And then also took the action that I knew would be beneficial and necessary to achieve whatever it was I was going after. And did that work? Do you feel accomplished today? I mean, I'm sitting next to it. Well, it's in the other room. But I'm sitting next to an Olympic medal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and it's so funny because the second that last run was over, I was like, it went right into like, did this really happen? Did I really do it? Like everybody's like, what did that feel like? I was like completely numb, just in shock and awe. And like, till this day, I'm Lauren Gibbs, like who, you know, right. The like fun, talkative, loves food, like, you know, casual CrossFitter that like never really tried that hard in CrossFit. And like who people see me as this is like over accomplished Olympian. So I don't know if I achieved the goal of like feeling I was as good as my resume, but I at least feel like I earned the success I had in bobsled because I did work hard for it. And so the medal scratched that itch for you to a certain extent? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the medal is amazing. And like, I feel like this is something only Olympic medalists can say, right? Because if, if someone who went to Olympics and didn't win a medal would be like, well, yeah, I wish I had a medal and I get that. But really for me, the, the itch that was scratched was like the journey and the people I met along the way and, you know, the different cultures and the different, you know, just ways of living and that I got to experience along the way was the coolest part for me. Yeah. So what's next in the Olympic journey? Are you focused on uh, winning another one? How are you thinking about the age old question? I'm in that weird spot where like I'm third. I just turned 37. My body hurt. I've had like some back issues some hip issues, some hamstring issues, some adductor issues. My shoulder hurts from like years of volleyball and not taking care of it. And I'm also in this amazing place where I'm doing the work that I don't know that I ever expected to be doing but it makes me feel the way that I was hoping work would make me feel in the sense of being like fulfilled and feel like I'm making an impact and also getting paid a reasonable wage and so I'm at this crazy impasse where just like I have this opportunity to potentially go to my second Olympics and win another medal and then go off and continue on this path or just leave now and just be a quote unquote normal person and have a job. And like, 
anybody that I'd say that to that isn't in the Olympic space is like, are you crazy? Like, why wouldn't you, you know, give it a go? And my plan is to give it a go, but it's that piece of me that hates to fail, you know, that I'll never really be able to escape, right? It's that the first Olympics were amazing. It was metal. I mean, obviously the metal's wrapped in that, but like aside from the metal, like team processing where they give you all like two to three suitcases of clothes and like opening ceremonies and then meeting people like Lindsey Vaughn and Sean White and like watching, you know, my friends win a figure skating medal and then seeing their medal right after and like making friends with Matt Hamilton, who's the Olympic champion of curling and like, and then all the things that I've been able to do since then, like, it's just like, it's, it was like a dream come true. And it was as perfect as can be other than maybe like, I wish we'd come down eight hundredths of a second faster. So we won a, a gold medal. Right. But like having the performance of a lifetime. And so that experience is going to be a incredibly tough experience to live up to. And like the perfectionist in me wants to make sure that my next experience is as good or better, you know? And so just trying to wade through that mental mind twisty twistiness that I have is what it is. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like we, people often create these systems to protect ourselves, right? So, I mean, failure hurts, rejection hurts, all those things are unpleasant. Doesn't matter what you're doing, probably hurts a lot more when you're competing at the level that you're competing. Especially when the bobsled flips over, that really hurts. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that hurts. But at the same time, you've done a lot of things in your life where you've sort of jumped in and taken the risk. How do you ultimately get yourself to go do that, to sort of take that risk despite those little warning lights going off in your head. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It was like, and this like goes back to like the, the first time I can remember doing something like this. Well, maybe even before that. So like at eight years old, I told my mom I wanted to play soccer and I don't even know where I got that idea. And I remember our first soccer game, they were, my team was nervous because the best player on the other, it was on the, of, of the league was on the other team. Her name is Karen Lotta. I'll never forget. She was incredible. <laughs> and I think she went off to play, you know, college soccer. Wow. They were like, we have Karen Lotta, they have Karen Lotta on their team. I was like, well, you've never played with Lauren Gibbs. And like, we lost, like I was terrible, <laughs> but I don't know. It's just, I get something in my head that I want to do. And then that's it. It's like the best, it's like the spoiled brat syndrome. I don't know. I just, if I want something, I will try and move heaven and earth to figure it out. And I, I just, I don't know. I haven't found a rhyme or reason as to why some things are just like things that I feel like I have to have and other things aren't. But I do know that if I want something, it's hard to keep me from it because I will outwork most people. But if on the other side, if I, if I'm not interested in something, like if I take a job that I know I don't, I'm not really into Oh, you have to move heaven and earth to motivate me to do it. So I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's, it's worked out pretty well, but in the times where I've been miserable, it's been the other side of that coin, right? Where it's something that I need to do like a job, like I need to have a job, but it's not a job that I enjoy. So it doesn't end up going well. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've, you've had so many varied experiences on, on your resume, so to speak. And I'd love to go back to something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation around the prototypical Olympian being someone that you perceive of doing that sport since they were four years old. There's a great book by uh, David Epstein called Range, where he really delves into sort of combating that stereotype of the best people at things are, are ones that specialize early and explores how a wide variety of experiences actually typically can really uh, prepare you for excellence in, in a number of different things. How has your background and your varied background, in your opinion, affected your success in bobsled? And how do you see that in your peer group in bobsled as well? Because it, it seems like bobsled attracts people from a lot of different athletic backgrounds. Yeah. I think I'd be a great case study for that book, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, um, it's funny. There's always been a part of me that wishes I found bobsled earlier because I'm curious to see what would have been possible for me as a, as an athlete, whether it would have been like going the pilot route or, you know, what other amazing things could I potentially accomplish if I had started earlier. But then there's the other part of me that knows like when most of my teammates start like at 22, 22 year old Lauren, she would have gone, she, I would have gone running for the Hills. Like it would have gotten tough. And I would just would have been like, Nope, not for me. It's not my fault. This X, Y, and Z is why I can't do it. And on top of that, like my business experience, the connections that I have, the business acumen, the sales skills that I have, I couldn't have done this well for this long without it because what most people don't realize is that in the United States Olympians are not supported by the government and so all funding for Olympians come from either the USOPC or personal sponsors and the USOPC is the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and where they get their money from is either private donors or corporate sponsors and so you know bobsled is one of those sports that's lower on the food chain because money is allocated based on metal potential. So even if we all metal, we don't have the same metal potential or expected metal potential as like a swimming or a track and field, right? They just have more metal potential. There's more event. And we have some of the, the best teams in the world in that, in that respect. So I had to fund a lot of my career. You know, I had to figure out coaching. I had to figure out treatment. I had to figure out like, where am I going to train? I, I'm here in Lake Placid now. I had to pay my way to Lake Placid for end of year, like inter-team races. And so I probably could have figured it out at 22, but would have been higher stress and probably wouldn't have been as organized or as forward thinking, or, you know, just been able to pull it off the way I have been at 30 plus. So it's interesting to me because talking to my friends who have been in their sport since they were four or were Olympians early, they're like, man, you had the Olympic experience we grew up dreaming about. But like, how does an 18 year old prepare for the biggest moment of their life at 18? That's insane amount of pressure. Yeah. And there's a lot written about what a high instance of depression there is coming out of that experience where your whole life is focused on something and then it's, you know, then it's over, even if you did great and a sense of what do I do next? 
it seems like you have potentially more optionality than somebody who spent their entire life dedicated to that sport. Definitely. But I will say this, even with all that optionality, I still had that same, we call it the Olympic slump or the Olympic blues after it's the most insane thing that hits you out of nowhere. It's just like when you've been so focused on one thing for a significant amount of time, for me, it was three and a half years, but literally bobsled was the only thing I thought about. First thing I thought about when I woke up, the last thing I thought about before I went to bed, every decision that I made, whether it was like when to see my family, when to go on vacation, what weddings I could say yes or no to, you know, staying up too late. I mean, I, I don't think, have I seen you since I started bobsledding? Cause like I, maybe in once, person, yeah, maybe once, right. Yeah. Because everything is like, yeah, I could go fly to Denver and hang out with my friends, but what is that going to take away from my op- opportunity to make the Olympics? So when you spend so much time focused on one thing and then it's over and I knew I was going to continue doing it, but then that feeling of like, can I be that good again in four years? Can I do this again? Cause that was, that was a lot of work and that hurt emotionally, physically, and mentally. Can I put myself in that, that, all-encompassing pain cave again, you know? So. Yeah. Well, you mentioned sponsors and your TEDx talk. I know that besides your, your bobsled focus, you've also spent a lot of time being a thought leader, being a motivational speaker. I'd love to understand, you know, was that driven as sort of a necessity to fund bobsled or is that sort of a, a passion in and of itself that will continue after bobsled and how, how have you thought about that? I mean, I'm definitely lucky that my, that my passion for speaking is something that can help fund my bobsled career. But I think I felt I, as a kid, I always enjoyed like singing and theater, but I have incredible stage fright. So I was never really in plays or musicals or in a choir. Like I remember trying out for acapella in college and just completely freezing, just like lost it. And so I feel like for me, public speaking is like theater for me. And not that my story is fictional, but I love the process of taking an audience through a life-changing experience in hopes that they will have some transformative thoughts or experiences along the way with me that will open up their world and help them on their own path. And so I'm really lucky. I've been, I've had so much support in my life and I feel like my way to pay it forward is to hopefully inspire in people, the understanding that how extraordinary things happen. You don't have to be born extraordinary, right? I I have some great genetics, right? I have this like freakish ability to build muscle and back squat, heavy things and move heavy things. But like, other than that, I, I'm, I'm a pretty normal person, right? I'm not like this superhero that deserves to be on a pedestal. And so the reason I've been successful on top of the support that I've had is just an extraordinary focus and effort. And, but it had to be in something that I was really passionate about. And so my hope is that if people can, you know, do more of the things that get them out of the, out of bed in the morning, keep them up at night or, you know, light their soul on fire and then put extraordinary effort towards it in a productive manner. And the world would just be a better place, right? 
people yeah. are happy and content, the world's a better place, um, or at least a more enjoyable place. So speaking is definitely a passion of mine and something I was able to do a lot of in 2020 because I did a lot of virtual corporate events. I think uh, virtual team meetings were getting bleak for different organizations. So I was lucky enough to just get contracted out to speak to different organizations, whether it be a team meeting or a client meeting and you know, just talk about the, my Olympic mindset and, you know, like I always call it life lessons learned in the back of a bobsled. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And is that something where you have an agent and they help you set up these engagements? No, I don't like to give people commission. So okay. <laughs> I set up my own stuff. <laughs> There's the business background coming in. Right. I mean, I did, I did, um, I was lucky I got, I'm on Airbnb experiences. So that was a huge catalyst. And then, you know, just because I'm 37, I, I know a lot of people that work in different companies like Shana, a, you know, a mutual friend of ours. I've spoken for two of her companies now. So, you know, that that's another reason that like having started this journey at 30 has really worked in my favor. So it's a lot of things that I've wanted to do and things I never expected that I would enjoy doing are, are coming together in this incredible way. So it's another mix of something that scares you, but also you want to go do, so you do it anyway. Yep. That seems to be a theme. Yep. Did you start public speaking before that TEDx talk and before bobsled or they really started together? Yeah. So, I mean, I told you about my Cutco job, right? And so I was a Cutco rep for a few years and then was also an assistant manager and then ran my own office. And so Cutco really kicked off a lot of things for me. It's one of the best educations I've ever had. My parents love when I say that since I, they, they paid for Brown. Uh, <laughs> but that's kind of where my public speaking started. I would speak at team meetings and then I got, you know, invited to speak at conferences. And I just, I really enjoyed just like the energy of speaking to a big group of people. It would give me this adrenaline rush. And it's a very similar adrenaline rush that I get to doing really well at bobsled. So, yeah. That's cool. I, I would imagine that's been different with the virtual experience. Have you been able to be in front of a, a large group recently? In real life? No. Yeah. <laughs> but the virtual thing is so cool because in some ways it's more intimate because when you're standing on a stage, people are so far away from you, right? Just like you and I are, you know, thousands of miles away, but where I can see your facial expressions and I can actually see who's laughing and I can see who's like kind of zoning out. And so it'd be great to do things in, in, what do they say? IRL, the, the kids are saying these days Absolutely. in real life. IRL. IRL. There's also an intimacy to virtual that is different. Now, if it's like a webinar, that's a little weird because I'm kind of just staring at myself, you know, talking and I can't see the audience, yeah. but in like a, a meeting type scenario, I, I really enjoy it. And I can do more of it more often because I don't have to travel, which is great. And so like there's, you know, and it's, it's more affordable for whoever's hiring me because I'm not cheap. Mm. Yeah. You know, they don't have to, to fly me there or put me up. So I think there's a, there's definitely pros and cons, but, but more pros than cons to virtual. Very cool. So Lauren, what does the pathway look like to the next Olympics for you? The pathway to the next Olympics, it looks like getting healthy. So 
I mentioned my back, my hip, my shoulder. So I actually had an MRI today on my back because I tweaked it a couple of months ago and it, it just like tightens up on me and it looks like really dialing in my nutrition, right? I think people assume if you're an Olympian, you have to be on the best diet, but you've seen me eat. My favorite thing to do is eat. I could take <laughs> down a whole pizza right now, right now. And wouldn't, in fact, that was my favorite moment at the Olympics is my pilot said that we needed to put more weight in the sled because we were lighter than she thought. And I was like, screw it. I will eat, I will eat that weight on. And she's like, you can't do that. I was like, watch me. She's like, I, you have until tomorrow morning. And I ate an entire pizza in between day one and day two. So if there's a pizza company out there that wants to sponsor a U.S. Olympian, I am your girl because I love pizza. I'm right? sure there is. And so really dialing my diet. I've basically because of some weight rules that we don't really need to get into. I've had to be on a diet for like the last seven years and it's just getting old. So dialing that in and then, you know, getting prepared to deal with the toughest six months of my life um, where you're just every day is measured, every day is judged and every day matters. So that's the path looks like. Yeah. Are there certain competitions you have to win to uh, that you're focused on or uh, not necessarily? So there's definitely different testing area. So we'll do a push championship. So it's a single push. We'll do a combos push championships. There'll be like a 30 meter sprint test, a back squat test. So it's, it's everything and, and none of it. Right. So yeah. it all matters. And, you know, maybe not all of it matters. So I just, and then it's like, every time you push a sled, just do your best. Yeah. yeah. Try and be uh, the fastest. Well, I hope you make it again. Appreciate it. Me too. <laughs> it's always fun to uh, watch your friends on an international uh, broadcast of a competition. Yeah. Lauren, for anyone that is sort of stuck in the way that you described being stuck at the beginning of this conversation, you know, potentially maybe you achieved all the things you set out to achieve, but you're, you're sitting there unfulfilled. What advice do you have for people in that position? Because I think that's a, it's a fairly common dynamic. Oh man. I would say, I think the first thing is to, to make sure that you have a good support system around you. And I think that it's always nice when that support system is, are people that you already know or you're related to, but don't be afraid to go out of your network to find that support system. Obviously be careful, right? Because if that support system drives you to buy this really expensive six month training program that <laughs> promises to make you a complete different person. Don't go that route. But I'd say, you know, I think it's important to be able to ask for help. You gotta ask for help. You gotta talk about how you feel and talk through it. And sometimes it's as easy as, Hey, maybe you're just not in the right role at that organization or it's you're in the right role, but wrong organization, or you just need to, you know, hit pause and, and try and do something else. And I am not, I realize that what I did is a luxury, right? Most people can't just quit their really fancy job and go, you know, screw around the back of a bobsled, you know, for three <laughs> and a half years and, ooh, it worked out for me. So, you know, when you have kids and you have a mortgage and I had a mortgage at the time, but, it, you know, it was rented out, rental. You have, you know, school loan and student debt. It's not possible to just drop everything and go, but 
what I do think that you can do is try and make small incremental changes in your routine, your way of thinking, the way of your way of learning and expose yourself to different opportunities in hopes of finding what it is you're either meant to be or finding other things in your life that make what you're doing that supports you financially palatable, right? Because it's, it's not always perfect. Yeah. Like there's a lot of times where I hate bobsled. <laughs> a lot of times. And the actual bobsledding part is maybe two minutes a day. And then there's all this other stuff that I have to do that isn't fun. Yeah. To be able to do the, that two minutes of fun stuff. And I think people think that if, just because you're going after your dreams every day is a celebration. And most days are tough. Yeah for everybody. Most days are tough. Even the people that look like everything's great. Most days are tough. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think realizing that you're not alone in that and asking for help and then just sharing your dreams and goals. And then someday someone may say, Hey, this is how you can do it. Cause I've talked about wanting to do speaking engagements for six years. I've always said, I want to find a way to support myself by having important conversations. Yeah. Right. And now I'm, I'm doing speaking engagements. And awesome. Yeah. So. One tough day at a time. I said a lot of words. Yeah, I said <laughs> a lot of words there. <laughs> well, I think they're great words and, and great advice. Lauren, this has been great. Thank you so much for spending some time doing this. If people are listening and, and want to get in touch, either uh, to speak to their organizations or otherwise reach out, what's the best way to do that? Yes, they can find me on LinkedIn. Lauren Gibbs. There's a picture of me with a bobsled behind me and it says Olympic athlete. So it's pretty, pretty easy to figure out which one's which. Okay. We'll link that in the show notes. Right. Or if you want to slide into my DMS, cause that seems to be the way most people reach out to me these days. It's LA Gibbs 84. Yeah. And on Instagram. It's like, yep. On Instagram. And even if you just want to ask a question or you need a little pick me up, feel free to reach out. Cause we're all in this together in, in some crazy way. So, well, thank you so much, Lauren. This has been great. Yeah. It's been great. Just catching up with you. <laughs> I know uh, I've got to do it again, but best of luck on the next Olympic journey. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of what didn't kill you. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.